Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Ashley Marie Oakland was born in Ames, Iowa on December 30, 1983 and grew up around Huxley, Iowa. In 2002, she graduated from Ballard High School in the top 3% of her class. She then enrolled at the University of Iowa before transferring to Iowa State University in 2006. After graduating with a degree in exercise science, she planned to become a physical therapist but ended up at a real estate company instead. However, since she had a bubbly, outgoing personality, the real estate business became something she really enjoyed. In 2011, 27-year-old Ashley and her boyfriend moved to West Des Moines, and she got a job at the Iowa Realty Company. On Friday afternoon, April 8, 2011, Iowa Realty hosted an open house at 558 Stone Creek Court in the Stone Creek Villas subdivision. Ashley arrived early at the model townhouse to get everything set up. Shortly before 2 p.m., a woman approached the townhouse and heard strange noises. When she entered, she found Ashley lying on the floor, dying from two gunshot wounds. The woman quickly called 911 and paramedics rushed her to the Iowa Methodist Medical Center. Sadly, they couldn't save her and she was pronounced dead later that afternoon. Investigators couldn't understand the motive behind her murder since nothing was taken from the house and she wasn't sexually assaulted. It appeared that Ashley was the direct target that day, which led investigators to believe she knew her killer. They then poured through Ashley's social media accounts, emails, and cell phone records. The only thing they discovered was a text message she sent a friend minutes before she was shot, but it didn't indicate anything was wrong. Still unable to find a motive, they began to look into the possibility of an unsatisfied customer or jealous competitor. They had also received dozens of tips regarding a male in a black Cadillac Escalade who had been seen talking to Ashley at Stone Creek Villas on multiple occasions in the months leading up to her murder. The man was young and described as scruffy-looking and was seen several times in the area of the model home in February and March. The man was even seen following her in his SUV when she drove out of the subdivision. The man wasn't seen on the day of the murder, and investigators believe he was most likely another realtor, but they still wanted to question him. However, despite all efforts to locate him, he never came forward. At this point, real estate agents were worried about their own safety, and Iowa Realty informed their agents to cancel all open houses until further notice. Investigators have also looked into whether there is any connection between Ashley's murder and the murder of 49-year-old Beverly Carter, a Little Rock, Arkansas realtor who was killed after setting up an appointment to show an empty home. 
Beverly was killed about three years after Ashley and was reported missing on September 25, 2014. Sadly, her body was found five days later in a shallow grave. Eventually, parolee Aaron Michael Lewis of Jacksonville, Arkansas was charged with Beverly's murder. Lewis was accused of setting up an appointment with Beverly to view a vacant house in a rural area near Little Rock, then killing her and burying her body on the grounds of a concrete company where he once worked. Since Ashley's murder, West Des Moines police have followed nearly 900 leads and interviewed more than 500 people but have never named a suspect in the case, which as of 2023 remains unsolved. Elmer Charles Chuck Deitch Jr. was born on December 13, 1955 at Ellsworth Air Force Base in Rapid City, South Dakota. He grew up near Iowa City, where his family had a farming operation. After graduating from Clear Creek High School, Chuck enrolled at the University of Iowa. On April 8, 1978, he married Elizabeth S. Thurkildson, and they would have two daughters together. Chuck's daughter described him as their best friend and confidant, and also said their father was an avid fan of the Iowa Hawkeyes and the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team. By the age of 52, Chuck was a farmer with 700 acres of land that he shared with his wife, Liz, and the two were very active in the community. In 2007, they bought a house that sat adjacent to the land they owned, and in March of 2008, they finally moved in. On April 28, 2008, Chuck and Liz took down a fence that separated the home from their land. Later that night, at around 9.50 p.m., Chuck was working on the computer in one room of the home, and Liz was reading a book in the living room when she heard their dogs, Joe and Annie, barking to come in. She went to the front door and called for them, but only Annie appeared. So Liz returned to the living room and noticed Joe was at the back door, which she found unusual. After letting Joe in, she returned to reading, but was startled by the sound of a gunshot. She quickly got up and went to the kitchen to look outside, expecting Chuck to come down the hall at any moment to also question the noise. Sadly, he never did. Liz rushed to the den to check on him and found him dead on the floor from a gunshot wound. Worried that the shooter was still outside, she crouched out of sight between the washer and dryer and called 911. Investigators determined that the bullet that killed Chuck came from a single shot outside the home and went through the home's front window. Unfortunately, they believe the murder was a random act of violence, and because of that, there is very little information to go on. Sadly, it's now been over 15 years, and there are still no suspects in the case, and as of 2023, it remains unsolved. Kimberly Marie Ratliff was born on September 26, 1976, and went by Kim. Kim's parents split up when she was five, and at the age of six, she and her mother moved in across the street with Leslie Kennedy, who went by Les, and the two eventually married. In school, Kim worked hard to keep her grades up and was the first person in her family to graduate high school. At the age of 22, Kim lived in Council Bluffs, Iowa, with Joyce and Les, and was employed by Airlight Plastics Company in Omaha. 
On January 8, 1999, Kim left work at 11.30 p.m. and was never seen alive again. Four days later, on January 12th, Kim's car was found parked in the People's Natural Gas parking lot. Upon further examination, they found Kim's body inside, beaten to death. When Joyce and Les were first questioned, they gave conflicting statements about whether Kim had actually returned home on the night of January 8th. Les then told investigators that Kim had fallen in with the wrong crowd and was hanging out with drug users and dealers. A neighbor, on the other hand, informed police that he saw Kim flee the home that night, distressed and barefoot. However, Les claimed that on the night he saw her, he confronted her about her life choices. He said that when she left the house, she kissed him and said, Dad, I'll be home tonight. Strangely, neither Joyce nor Les reported her missing. Investigators believe Kim was most likely killed elsewhere because there was little blood found inside her car despite the violent attack. There were also indications that after her death, her killer dressed her in different clothes before moving her body to her car. In 2017, DNA from the crime scene was tested and linked back to her stepbrother, Matt Kennedy, which is interesting considering he was one of the last people to see Kim alive. In October 2020, nearly 22 years later, Kennedy, who had since moved to Montana, was arrested for Kim's murder. It is of note that Kim's biological brother and stepbrother are both named Matthew. During the trial, his defense team argued that another person's DNA was also found on Kim, and in the end, the jury found him not guilty. Unfortunately, during the initial investigation, interviews weren't conducted or recorded right after the crime occurred. Also, her Pontiac disappeared 17 years ago and has never been recovered. Kim's biological father, Jack Ratliff, and brother, Matt Ratliff, remained suspicious of her stepfather, Les. They say they knew him before he married Joyce, and that he was always a dangerous man who couldn't be trusted. He also said that Les was possessive over Kim, who had once confided to her father that Les had tried to sleep with her at one point. During the investigation, witnesses claimed that Les was the one who had gotten Kim into drugs to gain control over her. Some think Kim's attempt to break free from her stepfather may have led to her death. Her brother also said that Kim had plans to go to the police about less dealing drugs. On December 16, 2020, 73-year-old Les was arrested and charged with multiple counts of child abuse stemming from events that occurred between January 2017 and December 2020. His hearing was scheduled for January 15, 2021, but two days before, he was arrested again and charged with two new child abuse felonies. However, he's never been publicly linked to Kim's murder. Sadly, on January 2, 2020, her father, Jack, passed away without ever seeing justice for his daughter. He spent 20 years trying to get justice for her and to protect his grandchildren from, as he called it, the House of Horrors. As of September 2023, this case remains unsolved. Ricky Neal Morehouse III, who went by Little Ricky, and his twin brother Reginald, who went by Reggie, was born on January 23, 1999 in Omaha, Nebraska, to Rick Morehouse Jr. and Rachel Page. 
Over four months later, in June of 1999, Rick married Robin Marie Hogue. When the twins were two years old, the court awarded custody to Rick after a bitter custody battle with their mother, Rachel. Rick claimed that they were often returned to him with unexplained injuries, including a broken leg. According to the family, Rachel had difficulty controlling her anger and was listed on the Department of Human Services Child Abuse Registry more than once. Even with that, Rachel was granted unsupervised visits with her children. In 2001, the twins were living with Rick and Robin in Harlan, Iowa. On Saturday, March 3, 2001, the twins spent their first weekend after the custody battle with their mother at her house on Cherry Street in Kent, Iowa. I want to give a quick side note. Kent, Iowa is no longer a city and was disincorporated in 2003, and in 2010, the population was only 61. That night at Rachel's home, a fire broke out upstairs. Her aunt and uncle, who lived nearby, woke up and spotted Rachel outside her burning home with her son Reggie. Sadly, little Ricky didn't survive. When Rick arrived at the Creston Hospital, he learned of his son's death. Strangely, however, he found Reggie safe with no injuries. Since investigators couldn't find any detectable smell or traces of smoke on Reggie's clothing, they determined he was most likely outside the home when the fire started. The hospital also couldn't find any evidence that Reggie suffered smoke inhalation. Even if Rachel rescued him as quickly as she said, there would still be microscopic particles present. Rachel told both Rick and the investigators the same illogical story. She claimed the power had failed, so she'd gone to the basement to fix the fuses and restore the power. She said afterward she went to check on the twins who were sleeping upstairs. She claimed the power failed again at 10 p.m., even though neighbors never reported any outages. Rather than try to restore the power again, Rachel said she went out to the driveway and began cleaning out her car. This was strange considering the temperatures that night were below freezing. While working on her car outside, Rachel told investigators that she saw flames shooting from the upstairs bathroom window. She said she rushed in, found Reggie at the top of the L-shaped stairway, carried him out of the house, and returned for Ricky, but couldn't find him even though the fire was contained in the upstairs bathroom. Also, she never called 911. However, her neighbor, Sherry Trembley, did call after seeing flames shoot out from an upstairs window. She then ran outside, where she was joined by Rachel's Aunt Linda. Sherry and Linda were two of the first to arrive on the scene. Both women reported they found Rachel standing in the yard with Reggie when they arrived. However, neither woman saw Rachel attempt to return inside the home for Ricky and never witnessed Rachel exiting the home with Reggie in her arms after the fire started. Though Rachel's car was parked in the driveway with a clear view of the home's front door, she said she never saw anyone enter or exit the house. However, they found physical evidence on her that showed she was present when the fire started, such as her fingertips were burned and her hair was singed. Rachel was then given a lie detector test and failed. Creston Assistant Fire Chief Mick Landers told officials that when he and volunteer fireman Eric Schaller arrived, the fire was largely contained to the upstairs bathroom. Schaller then entered the home to search for little Ricky. 
As the fire spread outward from the bathroom, Schaller continued to make repeated trips into the house in search of him with no success. When the fire was finally out, investigators finally learned the fate of poor little Ricky. State Fire Marshal Investigator David Linkletter determined that the fire was intentionally set using an accelerant that had also been poured on Ricky before being ignited. They also ruled out the possibility of the fire being the result of a blown fuse or faulty wiring. After setting the fire, the person closed the bathroom door, locking little Ricky inside. Ricky's original death certificate listed the cause of death as accidental because the doctor who signed the death certificate said he was unaware of the arson ruling. The family eventually convinced Dr. Daniel Walker to change it to homicide. Unfortunately for Ricky, Rachel's uncle, Ed Hardesty, was the county attorney in the neighboring county and had some influence with the Union County attorney. In 2018, an organization called the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases was willing to take on Ricky's case pro bono if Union County would release the case file to them. However, Union County attorney Timothy Kenyon declined to release the file. He gave the excuse that, since it was the Union County Sheriff, the Iowa State Fire Marshal's Office, and the Iowa State Medical Examiner who compiled all the documents in the file, he did not have the authority to release it. He also stated any notes he has made himself cannot be released either. A State Fire Marshal's Office spokesman said a copy of the arson investigation into Ricky's death cannot be released because the case is still open. The town of Kent is gone, the house is gone, but the corruption that prevented justice in the case remains and the family will never forget. Sadly, as of September 2023, this case remains unsolved. Robert Bruce Bates III was born on December 15, 1967 and went by Kip. He was described as a kind, respectful, private man with a great smile who loved his family. He was also known for being the type of guy who would help out older people in the community. Kip was a Marine veteran who served as a Lance Corporal and fought in Operation Desert Storm. In 2007, at the age of 39, Kip was a father of two with a baby on the way with his girlfriend, Tracy Kaiser. He was also employed at the Jumpstart convenience store in Carter Lake, Iowa. On the night of September 27th, he was supposed to be off, but had switched shifts with another worker. Around 10 p.m., Kip decided to step outside for a break. As he walked out the door, he was met by an unknown person who pulled out a gun and tragically shot him to death. Kip managed to make it back inside and dialed 911, but couldn't speak and sadly died from his injuries before help could arrive. The entire incident was caught on video surveillance. Before the shooting, Kip had told his uncle about a confrontation he had with a man at the store, but never provided any details. Investigators believe there's a possible link here because the motive doesn't appear to be robbery since the shooter never went inside the store. A few weeks after Kip's murder, Tracy gave birth to the couple's daughter. Sadly, there are few details available, and as of September 2023, this case remains unsolved.
Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.